Welcome to Drop Everything Podcast number 101. I'm your host, Dan Holzman. On this podcast, our special guest is juggler and actor Bobby Sandler. He played a very important part in my career and a very interesting podcast guest. Before we get to Bobby, though, let's thank our sponsor, the IJA, International Jugglers Association. Information about the IJA can be found at juggle.org. Also, go to Amazon.com and buy my latest book, Budsuckers, the story of stoned-out vampires. All right, now drop everything. Get ready for Bobby Sandler. Welcome to Drop Everything Podcast, episode 101. My very, very special guest, Mr. Bobby Sandler. Hello, Bobby. Hi, 101. Yes. Okay. Yeah, we've been doing it for about eight years, I think. And, of course, our topic is juggling. And this is a very important juggler for me because you have the place you hold in my career and in my life. Uh, but before we get to that, let's talk about young Bobby Sandler. Where, where were you born? New York City. New York, New York. And uh, what were you like as a child? Did you have a lot of siblings? What, what did your <laughs> mom and dad do? Yeah, I had. Did you have a lot of siblings? Yeah, I had 17. And then uh, <laughs> three of them died and four of them were. No, I had one sibling. That's what I had, and I still have one sibling. Nice. And were you interested in uh, entertainment as a child or, or sports, or what were you interested in? That's a good question. As a young child, I loved tennis, but I also I wanted to be a lawyer. My father was a lawyer. My grandfather was a lawyer. My uncle was a lawyer and vice president of the Bar Association. My brother became a lawyer and a judge, and I would read law books and books about attorneys. That's what I wanted to do when I was young. What year were you born? Like in the 50s? 1949. 1949. You are a little bit older than me, but of course you've, you've aged quite well. I, I got to meet you recently and I was very impressed by how, how spry you remained. <laughs> for an old man. Well, yes. older, older gentleman. For, an older, for a man older than you. Yes. Yeah. And so you, you not being so spry were surprised that someone older than you could be so spry, right? Well, I only knew you from the, the brief times I'd seen you on television uh, many, many years ago. So I wasn't sure what to expect, but you were pretty much exactly expect. The hair was different because you were known for your big curly hair. Yes. But besides that, I was very easy, easy to recognize you. But let's get to the whole juggling thing, because that's sort of a, an interesting thing to take up. Like, what, what was your earliest memories of juggling? How did you, you discover it? Well, I... Uh... I decided sometime in high school that I did not want to be a lawyer because it wasn't like the books, which told stories of very dramatic courtroom scenes and uh, television shows. It was a lot of sitting at a desk and uh, rigorous paperwork, and I did not want my life to be that. So I didn't know what I wanted to do. I went to the University of Miami, and I thought maybe I would become a tennis player. And when I saw how good the tennis players were there on the team, I realized I would never be able to be a tennis player. And I tried out for a play in the theater department and discovered that I really enjoyed doing acting, being in the theater department. After two years at the University of Miami, I transferred to NYU School of the Arts as an acting major. That's what got me interested in juggling because they had a circus course there taught by Hubby Burgess. Uh, just for, you know, movement for the acting uh, majors. And uh, Hovey was just one of the best characters I've ever met in my life. He's a sweet guy and an amazing teacher. And uh, he inspired me to, uh, to learn juggling. And I had a lot of fun doing ball juggling in Hovey's class. And then uh, one summer I uh, performed with Hovey's troupe in Central Park uh, called, uh, I think he called it... Um, uh, you know what? I don't remember the name of, of his juggling troupe. All of these names, though, will be lost on your listeners because they're two generations too young to know who Hovey was, who know who I am. Or if I mentioned any TV shows I was on, they probably don't even remember those. Well, Hovey has remained a pretty important part of our organization, the International Juggling Association. Oh, I see. It was at our festival in 2017. Got so, it. Hubby is very well known. Very That's well known. Glad to hear that. He deserves it. As is uh, Judy Finelli. Uh, were, were they married at that time? or They were not married. I uh, I celebrated their wedding with them. I, 
and uh, Judy's a doll. I loved her, and it was a lot of fun performing with her. And she's uh, her Facebook friend, and she uh, still is engaged and uh, on Facebook, and you know, bright and answering uh, with quips and uh, and get, and uh, just a lovely person. Yeah, I saw her yesterday. As a matter of fact, I try to see her once every couple of weeks, and uh, we've been great friends for over twenty years or so. So. She is a wonderful person, just like you said, and I'm sure she'll get a big kick out of this uh, podcast because these are sort of very, very inspiring days. Uh, these days, uh, like you say, you're of uh, the past generation, but you inspired a lot of jugglers, including myself. In fact, I was talking to a friend of mine today, Richard Kinnison, who's a, a very accomplished juggling coach, and he also credits you for starting his career as well, uh, seeing you on the Flip Wilson show. That is uh, amazing to me because all I did was on, I was on just a wild ride, not even attempting to be in show business at the time. But uh, I got out of, when I graduated from School of the Arts in acting, I had zero interest in pursuing an acting career. I didn't know what I wanted to do. I was on a, a camping trip cross country. I ended up in San Francisco. I was running out of money and I heard about a fair that hired jugglers. It was called the Dickens Fair in San Francisco. I went there and said, do you hire jugglers? They said, no, we do not hire jugglers. <laughs> but if you, want to, if you want to juggle and pass your hat, you can. I was a, a pretty good juggler. I could do five balls and I could pass 10 with hubby. But I mean, I was not not a super athlete and not, you know, jumping around doing flips, not doing club juggling. I wasn't a great, uh, you know, by any standard of professional jugglers at the time, I was not a great juggler. So I'm standing there at this fair juggling with my hat, you know, in the ground in front of me. And I made, I think, 26 cents the mm. first night I was there. Right. And I noticed that there was a, a, a magician who would get up on this little stage and he would talk while he uh, did his tricks and gathered a large crowd and he was making some money. So I got up there and started improvising and talking. And uh, over the next couple uh, days there, I wrote a an act that was about 25 minutes long. And I started making over 10 bucks a show, which was amazing at the time. Mm -hmm. It's another generational thing. <laughs> Still, from 27 cents, that's quite the uh, improvement. Yes, it's, yeah, it's quite an improvement. And uh, so when the fair was over, I went out in the streets of San Francisco and was juggling. And uh, a guy comes up to me in Union Square Park and uh, says, I'm not an agent. I'm not a manager. I'm uh, a writer and a producer. And uh, I just would like to help you out if I can. Do you ever come to L.A.? Anyway, he, he paid my way to L.A. He said, if you ever come down there, I said, I'm getting a car in a couple of months. He says, how much is the gas? And I told him and he gave me some money for gas to come down and said, call me when you get there. I want to make the long story very short and then you can ask me for details. OK, Sure, of course. Uh, basically, I went down a couple months later in my new car with a friend. I called him. He got me over the phone without even meeting me. He got me an audition. He sent me to some guy's house who I didn't know. Turns out the guy was, I think his name is Doug Weston. He owned a club called the Troubadour, which yep. was the club at the time. And Don McLean was the headliner there at the peak of his career. He's the guy that uh, had the hit, Bye, Bye, sure. And Vincent, all those great songs. Anyway, I go to Doug Weston's house not knowing who he is. I'm not into popular music. He answers the phone, in, in, a, in a, I think, in a Speedo with a... <laughs> with turquoise necklace on or something and invites me and my friend in and says, before you do anything, uh, just let's go for a, you know, have, how about going for a swim? So I'm swimming in his pool. And then he had me says, okay, show me what you can do. So I, I start my uh, juggling act at the side of his pool in my, and uh, he says, okay, I'll put you on tonight as a guest act. These, the story of that is good too. But anyway, basically someone saw me at the Troubadour called me, said, I'm not an agent, but I am trying to be, I got you an audition at NBC. I don't know what it's for. I go to NBC and I follow the little blue line to some office with a peacock on it. And it says the Tonight Show. And I have no idea what it really is. Hmm. I do my little I have some balls in a paper bag and an apple, you know, and I did part of my act for this guy. And he says, that's great. And then I got a call that night to be on the Tonight Show. So it started a with no publicity pictures, nothing. 
that started a chain reaction of Tonight Show, Merv Griff, all the talk shows, Mike Douglas um, and the, the Flip Wilson, some other shows. And then I toured as Herb Alpert's opening act for a year in the United States and Europe. And then I got a TV series for a year. And then when it was all over, I still had no publicity pictures. I didn't know what I wanted to do for a living. I hated living in L.A. I didn't not know. I wasn't motivated or ambitious about getting into show business. I didn't know what to do with myself. And I knew and I loved Marin County. I came up here and basically left show business and became a plumber. And uh, I have no regrets. I've really enjoyed my life. My life's been filled with a lot of laughter and love and uh, beauty and uh, and that's that's the long story made short. I do have questions. I do have questions. Okay, go ahead. Well, let's go back to the hubby days. There's one character that was also very important in my career was Carlo, who uh, the writer, uh, the author of the Juggling Book. Were you uh, a friend of Carlo? I know he also was taught by hubby. No, I was not a friend of Carlo. I think I heard his name. Is he the the one that? He didn't come out with the first juggling book, did he? There was a book that somebody had, had in L.A. where there were three little, I think, soft... No, that was uh, Juggling for the Complete Klutz. Right, right. I remember that. His was sort of a larger book, a larger soft-bound book. And it really, really went through all the basics. He was, a, I don't want to say a hippie, but he had that sort of hippie stereotype long hair and that kind of groovy vibe. Got it. But it was that combination of, of watching you on TV... And at the same time, it was 1974 uh, when his book came out. Got it. So you had a, uh, you had a, there was no YouTube video. So you used the book and, and uh, became a great juggler and a great entertainer. Two things I want to not forget to say. Uh -huh. One is how impressed I am with you that you could keep a career going, that you had the ambition and the talent and the, um, just the ability to work so hard to keep creating a new material and entertaining people. It's a great achievement and uh, um, uh, I admire you for it. And the other thing I wanted to say is the whole thing that started me, you know, just telling this quick story of how I got into juggling and in and out of it was that you told me that people had been inspired by me. I had no idea. You know, I had just heard when I first started juggling and I was juggling and eating the apple on TV that, oh my God, every jugglers everywhere are eating an apple now, you know, and they weren't before. But I, till recently and the internet and Facebook, I had no idea that there were people like you out there that actually had juggling careers or juggling hobbies their whole lives that saw me on TV. And I'm just absolutely uh, touched and delighted that um, people were inspired by that. Well, like you said, there was no YouTube. And I think for the first part of my career, you know, I started with green oranges and I didn't see another juggler for in person. I mean, I think the first seven years I had juggled or six or seven years, I saw very little uh, juggling. It wasn't very, it was after Ed Sullivan. So I didn't get to, I wasn't aware of the Ed Sullivan show and I wasn't a Carson watcher. In fact, I wasn't even aware that you did Johnny Carson. Right. Is there any kind of uh, video of that anywhere? This no, they, they they lost that video in the archives. So because I tried to get it years and years ago. Was that in L that was in L.A. though? He was he wasn't still in New York. He was in L.A. Yeah. I did see you though on Merv Griffin. Right. I think that was the first time because I never I don't think I saw the Flip Wilson show. I think I saw you on Merv Griffin. Got it. And then I saw you on a news program or some morning program where you were juggling apples and eating apples. And my understanding was that you were sponsored by the Apple industry. No, that never happened. I've heard people ask me about that. Never happened. I don't know. The only thing I was approached to do anything for, I think, was when the Juggling for a Complete Klutz book was being written or being promoted. I think they asked me if I wanted to be part of that. And I said no. Oh. At the time, I just uh, wasn't interested in promoting myself as a juggler. I didn't know what I wanted to do. I had that fun ride but I didn't know what I was going to do with I, I, my life. and uh, Well, of course, that went on to be quite the industry, the Klutz books. I mean, not just a juggling book. He became uh, quite the mogul. Uh, yeah. John Cassidy, I believe, is his name. Got it. All right, let's go back to the story a little bit then. All right. You're talking about the Troubadour. You're talking about San Francisco in the early days. Oh, yeah. Were there other jugglers that you met back in those days at San Francisco? Um, there was a guy, uh, let me see, jugglers. Well, I met Ray Jason was at the Renaissance Fair when I was there. When I first met Ray, he was not saying, talking at all in his act. And I believe, I don't, well, I never asked him, but I think that it was because he saw me 
gathering large crowds talking that he started adding that to his act and he developed a, a very popular act and uh, supported himself juggling for for his whole adult uh, life i think his whole career yeah he, he's a past guest we had him on a few back and now he's a, a nomad who lives on a boat really and is an author yeah and Got so it. has an exciting life traveling the world when I was juggling, um, okay, this is going to sound like I'm tooting my own horn, but at the cannery I juggled there, and uh, there was a harpist there who was jealous of my crowds, and he went to the security office, and he oh. asked them to boot me, and they did, and they booted me because I don't know what excuse he gave, but uh, you know, he told me explicitly <laughs> that he didn't like that I was uh, had larger crowds than he did, and then I went to Ghirardelli Square, and I was I performed one time there. And the management said that the vendors were complaining those people were leaving the stores to come out and watch me. And so I couldn't come back there. The most juggling I did in the streets of San Francisco was at Union Square Park downtown. And there I befriended a guy named Frenchie who was a, a homeless guy. And he, uh, you know, he would come and talk to me afterwards. And then he would start, he would bring me every once in a while, he'd bring me clothes that he found in Goodwill boxes and said, hey, this might fit you. This might fit you. <laughs> and... And but he was like he became a self-appointed guard. And if people were, you know, if other homeless guys or bums or something were were making a ruckus or he would go and, and uh, eject them from the crowd or be like a policeman. Anyway, he he, uh, he actually got his life together a bit. We, we spoke many times and he was very proud and said that he had gotten uh, I don't know how he got money, but he had had an apartment somewhere and he had me over to his apartment uh, in San Francisco. But that was a, a fun little slice of life that uh, I uh, enjoyed. You know, my relationship with the regulars at uh, Union Square Park. To jump to the, the Troubadour and my, you know, visit to L.A., when I went to the Troubadour, since it was Don McLean and he was at the top of his game, the place was mobbed and there was line out the street. And I go in the back with my little paper bag with balls in it. And I knock on the door and someone just peeks his head at me. It's what do you want? I said, I'm, I'm a guest act tonight. And he said, sure, you already slim. <laughs> <laughs> Did you show him your bag of balls? Maybe that. Uh... <laughs> I, should, I, I Luckily, I only had to show him the bag of balls. Yeah. Right. And uh, but I had a knock on the door again. And then uh, he had to go check and then he let me in. But uh, let's talk about the Troubadour a little bit. What I mean, that's a very famous place. What acts did you open for and, and who do you remember seeing there? Well, I, I just did the guest act for two, two sets of Don McLean, and the response was terrific. And then uh, they had me over again when uh, a guy named Hugh Masekela was, uh, was playing. And, uh, but it, it's a very, it's an intimate club. It's small which right. is it's a great place to perform. It was a great place to perform. When I was juggling at the Renaissance Fair in L.A., a guy comes up to me with long hair past his shoulders and a long beard, and he said, look, I, uh, I love to juggle, and I love jugglers, and I, I throw parties all the time in L.A. Can you, you, you want to come you know, to one of my parties? And So I go to his house, and I go to a party, I sleep over, and he, he says, uh, you know, anytime you come to L.A., you, you stay at my house. He was this rich guy. And uh, I had a job offer in L.A. to juggle at some club before. I forget what the club was. It was, uh, But uh, they had different acts. And I went, I called him, and I said, can I stay at your house while I try out the, the job? He said, yes. And I tried out the job. I didn't like the job, but I ended up staying, living at his house for several years. Hmm. Was he uh, somebody in the, in the industry? No, he was a, a personal injury attorney. He was super wealthy and he loved to juggle. And uh, he loved to throw parties. And so he threw uh, a party every Friday night at his big house overlooking Hollywood. And he had a swimming pool and uh, he rented out his, each, each bedroom had a bathroom so it was like a little suite, and he rented it out to young guys because he wanted guys there for his parties. And that was uh, an unusual uh, arrangement uh, that I experienced for my, you know, <laughs> life in L.A. And those were the, what years were those? What year was that? So 1970, uh, I think, 
three through seventy-four, no, seventy-two through seventy-four, something like that. And then uh, in seventy-four, I toured with uh, Herb Alpert as his opening act. And seventy-five, I was on a TV series for one year. Was that uh, called? I have it written on my thing. Was that on the rocks? On the rocks. It was a situation comedy. It took place in prison. And uh, it was about the cellmates and the guards. And it uh, had, let me see, Tom Poston starred in that. And nobody that's mm -hmm. listening will remember Tom Poston or Jose Perez. Yeah, I remember the name Tom Poston. He was uh, kind of a larger guy, sort of a very, very memorable face. He, Tom Poston had, uh, was on the original Steve Allen show in the 60s. And his TV career, just he, he was probably in, in about five or six or seven different uh, TV series. He was on Mork and Mindy. Mm -hmm. He just went from one series to the next. He was never out of work um, and very sweet guy. And did they incorporate your juggling skills at all into your acting or was that separate? That was completely separate and uh, no way. They, they never wrote a, uh, a, any juggling into the, uh, to the prison cell. Didn't have you juggling bars of soap or anything like that? They did, no, no, it's very dangerous to do that. That's what I'm saying. If you drop the soap, but, though. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's one of the more dangerous juggling tricks. When I was talking to my friend Richard Kinnison, he was saying that the thing that impressed him was that you used juggling to communicate. It wasn't You were just a juggler, but that you were able to sort of express yourself through the juggling. Where did your sense of humor come from? Because you're very dry, but it's very effective. Were you uh, inspired by the comedians of your day? No, I, I actually never was. Uh, my dad was a funny guy, and he just we were just raised liking things that are silly. And I believe that when you're delivering funny lines, it's best to be very serious about them. <laughs> be serious about your humor, because mm -hmm. if, if you're laughing at your own jokes, it, I think it takes away. So I, I, I just uh, have always uh, gravitated toward uh, dryness and uh, straight faced uh, deadpan humor. And the humor in my juggling was that I was just this ordinary guy. Not, I mean, the jugglers at the time on TV were wearing, you know, fancy little shiny outfits like, and, and jumping around with the music there with no words and, uh, and boom, 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 they <laughs> seven, you know, hoops in the air and then you know, do flips and run around and ride a unicycle. And then they were up the stage. And so I come out and I'm just dressed in ordinary clothes and I just start talking about how deadly important and serious what I'm about to do is. And then it was, by contrast, so nothing that uh, I drew the audience in and it was a conversation. That was the, the beautiful part of it. Well, that's one thing I liked about it was that you're a real person. I have a, a protege, a kid, a kid in his, his 30s, who I'm working with and I, I plan to send him your video. Because a lot of people, like, they, they play the role of the juggler. Like they wear the vest and the bow tie and they're zany. But it's like they're pretending to be, this is what a juggler does. Right. As opposed to expressing themselves and their own personalities. And you definitely were, uh, like I said, you came out just dressed in a nice sort of plain clothes, a collar shirt. Uh, did you say I just I came out distressed? No, I said just dressed in a plain outfit, not like you say in the, in the one-piece jumpsuit. But you, you would see Francis Brunnen or jugglers of like that, uh, that ilk. So. I definitely. And I also had like a big curly hair at the time. And so one of your tricks was the rolling the ball off the head. And that was so memorable for me because you were so much like what I could aspire to, uh, as opposed to like Chris Cremo, who was the other juggler I had seen. And what did, what did Chris do? How did Chris, what was his? Chris is a, a, a gentleman juggler. Uh, comes from a dynasty of jugglers. His father, Bella Cremo, was also a famous juggler. And he was what they call a three-piece juggler, meaning he did um, wore a three-piece suit and did uh, cigar boxes, hats, and balls. Got it, got but it. But in a very, very slick presentation, just very, all the things I didn't think I was, sophisticated and dashing and, you know, all those things. And, and then you learned that you were all those things, right? <laughs> well, I learned, that, like you did, that there's, if you express yourself and you sort of come out with something unique and original, you don't have to be the, the best juggler, technically. Right. You just have to show something different, something right. original. And like I say, I think at the time, the same way Doug Henning was with magic, there was sort of a off-putting nature to the variety arts where people didn't talk. And it was sort of that uh, 
you know, uh, the saber dance and the guy who's spinning the plates and, you right. know, once again, coming from Ed Sullivan. Acrobats, right. Also acrobats, too. You did exactly what I did in your own complete style, which is you're completely different because you were yourself. Well, I also don't like when people laugh at their own jokes, like you were saying. That's certainly a, a style that kind of gets the audience laughing. But boy, that's hard to recreate every time, I'd imagine. That, that kind of feeling that you're, you're, you're finding yourself funny. Right. I was very lucky I had a partner, and he was very good at finding me funny. <laughs> That's a good well, that, <laughs> yes. you know, So you, you can do things, and then your partner is laughing at you. I like that. Exactly. That was sort of our, our basically our formula for, for a lot of the routines, is that uh, we found out it was better that if he did the juggling and I kind of busted his chops, and I always tried to do a lot of improv anyways, but... He was very good at reacting naturally to lines he had heard hundreds of times. And that was certainly very effective for us. Well, that's an acting technique where when you're delivering a line that you've done many times, you have to make it sound as if you're thinking of it for the first time. I think that's the mistake a lot of people make is at a certain point, their material becomes so rote to them that it almost lacks meaning. It's just something they say, and they forget exactly what was funny about it in the first place, and they start to lose that, that comic edge. Right, well, it's all about the communication. And uh, if you are, just like I'm doing now, if you're thinking about what you're gonna say before you say it, even though you know exactly what you're gonna say when you're performing, you know, people are drawn in. They, they, they find it charming and, and interesting. What's gonna happen next? But if you make it too rehearsed and by rote, it loses its uh, the feeling and uh, the communication. And that's that's everything. You're asking people to spend precious moments of their lives. That's all. They can never get them back. you got to give them something, you know, something surprising, something entertaining, something, and you know, to uplift them. Otherwise, why bother sit, sitting there, sit there? Why bother to sit there and watch you? Well, I think you said one of the keys is that you have to think about what you're saying. You have to take that pause because nobody, if you just talk with like a non-stream, non-stopping stream of consciousness, it's just people don't have time. To, it's, it loses that. Like you say, it's not a communication anymore. It just becomes a monologue. And that's not nearly as effective because the audience doesn't have a part to play. Right. Right. So let's go back also to your, your manner on stage is because you came across so comfortable. Was that something you just had naturally? I don't, I guess I just really enjoyed the process. It felt natural to me. So I can't explain why, but I love people. I love uh, connecting with people. I talk to strangers all the time. I'm looking for the good and the fun always in life. And life is, just one big improv. <laughs> I, mean, I like to think of it as a game, right? It's, well, a, it's, a, it's a game. It, it's a serious game. I'm very serious about focusing on having the best time possible. And, uh, you know, so I, I, you stay focused and you evaluate, you know, what you're doing, how you're doing it, and uh, are you succeeding? And if not, alter your course, alter your methods. And uh, because there's nothing, I don't believe there's one damn thing after this. So, what else are you going to, how else are you going to spend your time? But what, having a good time and who do you hurt by doing that? Well, that's, I think that's why we click because we share that same kind of feeling that this is it. Milk it out the best you can do. Wait a minute. I just, I mean, I didn't know we clicked. I mean, I, I, I didn't <laughs> I say I we liked you, Dan, Daniel. <laughs> <laughs> I try to be likable. I don't know. I see. You know, yeah. I like people too. I like talking to people and I want to have fun and I want to get the most out of this experience of life. So we share that. But let's go back to juggling because that is sort of the, the focus of our of our podcast, Drop Everything. Now, when you did The Tonight Show, was it something that, that overnight sort of changed your life and career? Did you get that big bump the next day? Well, y yes. I mean, I, you know, I immediately was getting calls from the the Merv Griffin show and then other talk, sh talk shows. It just happened very quickly. As soon as you do one show, it's a, actually a very small uh, club, you know, show business, you know. <laughs> well, at that time, especially, I imagine, much more so than it is now. Right. 
So. Now, the only appearance available of you on YouTube is Flip Wilson. Is that the only way? Uh... Well, I have other uh, performances on Merv Griffin and uh, some other performances, and I forget some other ones. And they're on uh, DVDs, and I have no idea how to transfer them to digital. My daughter transferred that Flip Wilson to digital because she knows how to do it. And I think I gave her some of the DVDs, and she claims to not know where they are. So uh, <laughs> eventually they'll show up. And uh, What about the show uh, The Magic Man? Do you remember that one? It was hosted Magic. by Bill Bixby. Uh, Bill Bixby. I forget. It was Magic something. Yeah. Yeah, Magic Man. That's what I had on your IMBD. Uh, but that, that's the wrong title. But anyway, um, okay. no, they, uh, that was just a, I performed and, uh, and went home. They flew me to New York and it was filmed in Brooklyn and I went home for the, and uh, I filmed it and then flew back. And, uh, I found out that Bill Bixby was in first class and I was coach and <laughs> I sent him a note, you know, complaining about it. <laughs> <laughs> well, he was another big idol of mine because he was an actor that was very supportive of magic and he even had a, a TV series where he played a magician, I remember. Got it, got it. And magic to me was very close to juggling. I mean, as far as uh, the relationship, uh, you know, of, of the variety arts. Right. But there was so little juggling that sometimes you gravitate towards magic as, as the, it's uh, its weaker cousin. Right. Well, there's one word, actually, that's used for both uh, the, you know, the dexterity of a magician's fingers and, and a juggler's. It's called uh, prestidigitation. Have you heard that? Yeah, I think the first jugglers were prestidigitators or yes, yes. something like yes. that. The prestidigitators, but so are magicians, prestidigitators. Well, we share a lot. Like I, like I was talking about my own career, magic was just too much. You had to show other people. I was too much of a loner. And juggling you can kind of do by yourself. You must have practiced quite a bit because when you see you on Flip Wilson, you're doing simple tricks, but you're doing them very, very precisely and throughout the course of the whole routine. Like you never stop juggling, really. Right. Uh, did you feel yourself that, did you have um, kind of a practice regime you used? I had no regime. It was just completely motivated by fun. I just <laughs> I loved practicing. The fact that it, was part, it wasn't a loner thing. I was in taking a circus course from Hovey, and I would, whenever I had extra time, I would take extra classes with Hovey, and then I would go to Hovey's studio and practice, and it was just a social thing. I never had a a practice regimen. It was just like, oh, I want to learn this. I want to learn this. And I would just keep practicing and practicing. And if I would go out in Central Park and just practice on a field, sometimes it, it would attract other people that knew how to juggle or I would meet jugglers there. It was just fun to do. And that's it. So I can't say that I uh, was disciplined and ambitious. I was just a guy that happened to love to do it. Now you have some other uh, credits, acting credits. Do you remember these shows? One was called Lunch Wagon. Oh, that was ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> okay. It was a, uh, just a, a low-budget film that never went anywhere, and I think I might have had one line. And there's another one called The People Next Door. I have no idea what that is. It's not me. So. Oh, okay. <laughs> Basically, I think any my best acting experiences were uh, at the University of Miami when I, when I, for the two years that I was there in the drama department. Their drama department was based on uh, anybody could audition for any part. It was based on merit, and they had some great productions there, and I had a lot of fun, a lot of uh, fun character acting. And then when I transferred to NYU School of the Arts, that's what made me not want to go into theater. I just was so down on it. I didn't like the way they taught there, uh, the theater program, and where they would just, uh, it took the fun out of it for me. I don't, if other people loved it. I, for some reason, it was not a good match. And even after you quit juggling, you didn't decide to like keep in acting at all? Was it just the whole, the whole scene? The whole scene was just something so foreign because I... I truly hated living in L.A. Uh, back in the 70s, it was very difficult to get anywhere because of the traffic. It's worse now, but right. it was just a sprawling uh, suburb which with not a lot of natural beauty. And Marin was gorgeous, and I had friends up here. And I actually had a girlfriend up here. I, uh, I met a girl on the East Coast, summertime, and she came out to live with me in L.A. And she would, after a while, she would just cry every day saying how much she hated L.A. And so I said, look, let, I drove her up to Marin, introduced her to people, helped her find an apartment. And she enrolled in some courses at the College of Marin. She started a life up here. She got a job. And so 
there I was in LA and my girlfriend was in Marin where I really wanted to be. And so when my series was canceled, the series I was on, I just came up to Marin. And uh, I went back a couple times just to see whether I could get work in show business. But uh, every time it was uncomfortable for me. I, it wasn't something that I had decided I wanted to do or was going to do, and I didn't like the process. And so there you have it. I, uh, a friend of mine's dad was a plumber. He said, come to work for me. And I did. And uh, I enjoyed it from the start. So I think being a plumber is a great job. I was just telling my friend Richard, too, that I think it's a good, solid job. I mean, it's a, it's a good skill. It's uh, well paid. And you get to set your own hours, it seems like. so. Well, I... Uh... I never did that in a big way either. <laughs> right. Uh, I never had employees. I work alone. And when I had a job that required more people, I would hire a friend that was a plumbing contractor, a licensed contractor, so I didn't have to be, have an employee on the books and we would share jobs. But when I first started plumbing, I was working for my friend's dad and my friend's dad was dishonest, uh, a right. gypsy, disorganized. I remember, I think the one of the very first jobs, he was paying me $6 an hour and I go to a job and he shows me how to cut and thread gas pipe and run a gas line and he leaves. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> okay. That sounds kind of dangerous. Yes. But, uh, and so didn't, he had inadequate tools and left me with big responsibilities. He left me in a, an apartment, a four unit apartment building in the Sunset District of San Francisco, where the water was shut up to the whole building, taught me how to solder pipe and had me soldering in someone's open walls and then you know, left me there to turn the water back on. So this is not the way you're supposed to learn. I, would, I, went, I bought myself about 13 how-to books I bought tools and I would show up on jobs and I, whenever I had to do anything, I would read how to do it in about 13 different ways. And so I learned fast, but it was instant gratification and I enjoyed the process of, you know, looking at what I had done at the end of the day or, and uh, being uh, proud of it. And uh, so, but what I eventually did was I became a service plumber, which is uh I do small repair in people's homes. I've been doing that for, you know, 35 years. I've been plumbing for over 40 years. First, I did construction and remodel. Then I just started doing service. So if you need a new faucet or a new toilet or a new water heater or you have a leak under a sink or a new, you know, some uh, new water main is actually easy to do if they dig a trench in the lawn. Small jobs, one person jobs. I'm just dealing with homeowners. I'm making long-lasting, wonderful relationships with my customers, many of whom have become friends. And I do set my own hours, and I don't make a lot of money, but I love my job. Well, I think uh, plumbers are like car mechanics. Like, there is a sort of reputation uh, for dishonesty that you have to be aware of the fact that, especially if you know nothing about cars or plumbing like I do, that you can be taken advantage of. Finding a good plumber, like we have a good plumber we really like, and it's a, it's a wonderful thing to be able to call somebody, you know, when you have a leak or something you need done. Are there any warning signs we can look for uh, in a shady plumber? Well, I don't like plumbers that come in and say, okay, it will cost you X amount to change your faucets. And then you say, well, I want to change my angle stops as well underneath the little valves underneath your sink. And he says, okay, well, that'll be, you know, $75 per angle stop. And he has, it's, I forget what the name of it is, but it's pricing according to each little aspect of the job. Mm. It's so horribly dishonest because it so inflates how much they would be making if they were making a good hourly wage. So I just tell people, you know, I just charge an hourly rate and uh, I do the best I can to be as efficient as I can. And... Uh, if somebody engages me in conversation about things unrelated to plumbing while I'm working, I go off the clock. And uh, I just, I want to make the experience good for my customers because without them, I don't have a job. People have asked me, you know, why? Because they've noticed that I'm completely honest and I you know, try and do the best job possible. They said, you know, so many plumbers are not like this. Why are you like this? I said, because I'm incredibly selfish and greedy. <laughs> And I lust for more money and more customers. 
And the way to do that is to do the best job possible, be honest and give a fair price. It's my greed and uh, selfishness that make me honest and a good plumber. Well, I, I, I wouldn't put it that way, but uh, if that's how you take it, but greedy is not a, a word I associate with that with you. <laughs> it gets a bad, it's, it's package deal. It, you know, people give it a lump it together with only completely inconsiderate, dishonest grabbing. Right. But greed can be just a, a lust for something. And it depends on how you go about getting it. That's what determines whether greed is good or not. I mean, greed is, is not good or bad. It's your actions in pursuit of your values. And if you are completely oblivious or inconsiderate of others, if, if you violate other people's rights, if you're dishonest with them in order to get something, I don't believe you're being selfish at all. You're not doing what's in your rational best interest. You're hurting yourself as well as the other people. I, I don't believe there are conflicts of interest between honest people, you know? So. Well, I think for me, I just value my peace of mind. That I would, I'd rather have a, a clear conscience than more money. Right, so. right. I, I want to have both, if it's possible. <laughs> you know? possible. Well, you seem to be doing, uh, you have a nice life in Marin. And yeah. I know uh, your wife has that nice store we, we were at that plaza. That was a very beautiful store. Uh, what's the name of your wife's store? In case people want to visit it. Columbine at Corte Madera Town Center. And Corte Madera is a lovely town and a lovely uh, area to go visit. That's where I met you for, for lunch a couple of times. That's Let's right. look at back to juggling. We got a little off track, but that's fine because we want to know about you. Let's talk about eating the apple because, of course, that is a very famous juggling trick. Okay. Well, um, one day in circus class, Hubby mentioned that he had seen a Russian clown eat an apple while he juggled. And so that was, I went out at lunch that day and I couldn't find an apple wherever I was, I was going for lunch, but I, I bought a jelly donut and brought it <laughs> up to class and juggled and ate the jelly donut. And, uh, I was just inspired to do that because I just thought it was such a funny idea. So I, I juggled, uh, the apple and ate it and then I incorporated that in my act when I wrote my act and nobody else was doing it at the time. And people were saying, Oh, you developed the, uh, apple trick. I said, no, I did not. Uh, it's an old trick, but nobody was doing it, and maybe people were doing it. But the thing is, nobody had done it on TV. Oh, there's also a difference in the presentation. I mean, you say adding the dialogue and the talking. Right. I mean, maybe people had done it in the circus and things uh, in a silent manner. But I think you were the first words to put like a comedy routine out of it with dialogue. Right. That's a pretty big step because, of course, that became a staple in, in the world of juggling. And uh, many performers still do that today. Oh, still eat? While they juggle? Oh, yeah. And very few people have to have really deviated from the apple. But like the idea of a jelly donut. There's a juggler, uh, Dale Jones, who eats a head of cabbage, I remember, and uh, <laughs> uh, other things like that. But of course, it's uh, remained the red delicious apple. So uh, you also sort of created the color because no one eats a green apple. I see. Well, so you did set the standard for the red. The red delicious apple. I used to have, I had recurring nightmares when I was performing that I was showing up, I would show up to do a performance and I f forgot my apple. Ah. <laughs> well, we have a, a st little story, maybe this happened to you because my partner and I, uh, in the beginning of our career, we would eat an apple and carrot while, while we did like a side-by-side -side walk around kind of thing. And one day we were, we were opening for uh, the singer Tom Jones and we were sitting up in the balcony looking down and we saw this big chunk of apple still on the stage. Uh huh. And we thought, oh my God, if he slips on that apple piece, that would not be good for our career. No, not at all. Right. And it also made the clubs very sticky because then we did club passing after the apple eating. Right. So it didn't last very long, but did you ever have any trouble like where you left the yes, stage yes. a mess or? A couple times. Um, I performed in Las Vegas, at the Riviera Hotel in 1974. And apparently there were some uh, high rollers that were brought there by management and they had their prostitutes with them and they were sitting in the front row. I did my act and the next morning I was told that uh, the uh, the women in the front row were offended by the spattering of apple, and uh, they thought it was gross and the management said, you can no longer perform here. Oh. They took my name down from the uh, marquee and that was that. 
And uh, let me see another thing. They didn't say just take that out of your act. They basically said that's it. No, they just said that's it. You you can no longer perform at the Riviera Hotel because we're such a high class, you know, establishment. Right. And then <laughs> another uh, Apple incident was uh, on the Merv Griffin show. I told him I didn't want to eat the apple again because I had already done that in my act and I needed you know new material before. I didn't want to keep coming on. Yeah. And so. I did my act without the apple, and then he comes out with a bowl of fruit, all oh. kinds of fruit. He says, I, you wanted to expand your act. Here I have uh, many different fruits that you could try. <laughs> and uh, so I'm standing next to him, we're facing the audience, and I take the banana. I said, the banana is not good because of the shape and the, you know, when you Turning it is not, you know, you have to peel it. And, uh, and I forget what other, I said, I picked up a plum that was just super ripe, and I said, and the, and the plum is just too mushy, and I squeezed it, <laughs> and the thing spattered all over him. Oh. And he was wearing a brand new white suit, oh. and, but the, it, it just completely, I, I completely just held my a straight face, you know, and he, and uh, the audience went crazy, you know, and uh but that was uh, a, a very memorable moment. I and I um, I have that on tape, but I I mean it's on DVD. And when right. I if I ever digital digitize it, I will uh, send it to you. What was like Las Vegas like at that time? Because you did like Los Angeles. I, I can't imagine you liking Las Vegas. I just toured the whole country with Herb Albert, and Las Vegas was the only place that I went where I couldn't wait to get back to Los Angeles. It was so horrible there. <laughs> there was just nothing to do and it was hot and dry. And uh, the only fun I had there was, uh, see that before cell phones, when you needed to get in touch with somebody, you would have them paged, paged right. in the airport. And so at the hotel, I, I kept having, I would say I had uh, Joseph Bonanno paged, who was a, a very well-known gangster. Mm. And at the time, Las Vegas was known by being run by gangsters still. Yeah. So I'm, I'm in the pool and I, you know, I went and I said I wanted to page Joseph Banano, you know, pick up a paging phone. And I hear on the loudspeaker, paging Joseph Banano, paging <laughs> Joseph Banano, please come to the white courtesy phone. And I hear these ladies say, you see, you see, it is run by the mafia. Yeah, we used to do that as well in airports. We used to page Enrico Restelli, you know, famous jugglers and things like right. that. Right. That says something, people, that, a, a bit of fun that no longer exists, unfortunately. There are other other ways to have fun, you know. Just That's true. Use the new technology. So Now, it sounds like you had fun touring with Herb Alpert. What kind of venues did you play? Um, we played some very large county fairs where thousands and thousands of people were in attendance. And then we played uh, smaller venues, you know, with 1,500 or 2,500 people, you know, you know auditoriums. Yeah, those kind of venues were fine for uh, for my act. Super large ones are not. And did you wear a, a wireless microphone at that time? They had lavaliers and things like that. Yeah, yep. And uh, did you have any interaction with him? Of course, he was famous for uh, what Tijuana Brass. Yeah, the Tijuana Brass at the time they had sold more albums than the Beatles. Yeah, very big act. What's another act that probably people today have very little awareness of of him? But he was he was a big star. Huge star. Yeah, a lot of, I mean, the band was very close. We traveled together on, on buses lots of times, and everybody was super friendly, including Herb Albert. That's nice, because uh, we got to work with lots of opening acts, and a lot of times, or a lot, we worked as an opening act quite a bit. A lot of times, you know, um, your job was to perform while people were coming in sometimes, and the, the audience wasn't quite fully there yet. But they needed something surefire. They needed something that would pretty much always work, you know, at least to set the audience in a good mood. Right. And what did you do, like 25 minutes? How long was your set? With Herb Alpert, I did probably about 12 to 15 minutes, something like right. that. And I would just wander out. There would be just a microphone sitting on the stage. Nobody knew what was going to happen. And I would walk out almost <laughs> like a stagehand and stand in front of the microphone and just say, ladies and gentlemen, I am the opening act. And that would get a laugh. <laughs> right, right. You didn't dress like a performer, more just no, like a regular not, guy. Not at all. Not at all. It's just a conversation is what it was, you know. Now you say there's no photos of you, but I did find an image that has like multiple shots of you. Oh, really? And you'd be surprised to know that that image is worth $450 if you wanted to buy that. 
if I wanted to buy what image? Uh, there's a photo of you. It's got like multiple shots of like you juggling on the same picture, uh-huh. like three different pictures. And you can buy that image for $450. I see. Well, it's not worth it. Don't do it. <laughs> Better to yeah. hire a dishonest plumber. Well, I mean, it just shows that uh, there's some rarity to it. Because like you say, there are probably not a lot of pictures of you. Very little information about your act. But people don't realize that it was a very influential. And uh, at the time, it, it started a lot of people's careers. Like you said, it was uh, a moment in time. And, and that act still holds up. It's still funny. Oh, well, thank you for that. I'd hate to lose that, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Let me ask you a question. This is probably uh, something you would never consider. But are you aware of these uh, talent programs like America's Got Got Talent? Did you ever consider coming out of retirement for one last hurrah? Oh, just to do one uh, one last show. Well, like America's Got Talent, because your story of here's a guy that was, you know, big in show business and he gave it all up to be a plumber. Now he's come back after 40 years. You got it. Is that something you'd even consider? I've never given it any thought, so... Is that a show you watch, America's Got Talent? Uh, I've seen a lot of America's Got Talent uh, on uh, on YouTube, mostly singers, right? Well, the Variety the, uh, the Acts never win. I mean, it's pretty... Well, the, the magicians do. Right. But the jugglers are, have had a pretty rough go, except for maybe the Passing Zone and Victor Key. Got it. And how aware are you of like the modern jugglers? Do you sort of follow juggling and, and I, who's... I haven't, no, but I, I don't know that I would be entertained for long watching great juggling, you know, if it were just juggling. I really enjoyed watching your act because it was clever and unique. And uh, so that held my attention. But uh, so I haven't I haven't followed the juggling world. Well, let me give you at least one name. The, the juggler who I think is the best technical juggler of all time, Anthony Gatto, G-A-T-T-O. OK, so if you want to see what I think is the highest peak of professional juggling. We have a lot of jugglers now who are very good, you know, making videos and um, and some of the videos you can see that are edited together are, are amazing. But as far as a juggler, like in real time, you know, performing at the highest level in Cirque du Soleil and the biggest circus competitions, you know, being able to do it under that kind of pressure, I, I still think that Anthony Gatto is is unmatched. Got it. How, is he a tall guy, short guy? No, he's he's five, five, pretty small. He's maybe five five, five six, muscular, but not a not a not really a built guy. But his, still his father was. Oh, no, he gave it up to become a concrete to became, person who does driveways and to, stuff to like become, that. To become concrete? Well, to, to be in the concrete industry. I don't know what you would call a person like that. Uh, he has a concrete business. <laughs> sure does. And he, uh, well, he gave it up, I think, around in his early 40s or so. I think probably because, to some degree, because of the difficulty of maintaining that style of juggling, that high seven clubs and nine rings and things of that nature. Right. Where jugglers like us, who are more of the comedy jugglers, and I think we can do it into our as long as we want, or as long as people will pay us. But I think it does take a physical toll when you're working on the highest level uh, of technical juggling. Right. Well, it'd be tantamount to being in the top of the game as, as a professional tennis player or, or a gymnast. You can't maintain when you get older. just cannot compete. It's even just small things, like if you wake up and your neck is stiff, or your, your elbow hurts, or... Just these small things. I, I think they're headed to a lot of physical therapy. I know uh, Cirque du Soleil probably has the best physical therapists. But when you have to kind of prepare yourself and, you know, have the whole day gearing towards your performance, like you say, that doesn't sound like fun. Right. So right. And having a, a good business, a concrete business, if we can use the pun there, I, I admire that. I admire anybody who doesn't feel like they have to be something they don't want to be. Right. Well, that, yeah, that's a a really horrible thing to do in life if you feel like you're you have a duty to do something. You know, there's only self-imposed obligations. There's no you're not born with any duty. Well, I think that's one thing. Unfortunately, Anthony Gatto is not really a part of the juggling community anymore. I think maybe they, I don't want to speak for him, but it seems like people wanted him to do. Why aren't you doing sight swaps? Why aren't you breaking more records? Why aren't you doing this? Right. And that, that can't be very comfortable. No. Well, it's similar to when a parent tells you that you need to do, you pursue a certain career goal and your uh, your heart isn't in it. Well, I think there's two approaches to juggling. There are certainly people like Chris Cremo or Anthony Gatto where it was almost the family business. Like from the, and I do think that 
that's the way to become the greatest at anything is certainly start at such a young age. But then there are people like you and me and many others who found juggling. Uh, it had nothing to do with our families. Like you say, you came from a, a lawyer, your dad. My dad made buttons at a company called Modern Buttons. Uh -huh. And so to have found juggling and to sort of made it our careers or made it a part of our lives, uh, it's a very unique group. And uh, once again, I want to thank you for the, the role you've played in my career and in inspiring me and many others to, to become jugglers. Well, thank you for letting me know. You reached out to me and let me know that there are people that exist that were inspired by me. And I'm absolutely delighted. And thank you for it's It's a great compliment. I feel uh, honored to be uh, recognized in that way, uh, especially by a person like you who made such a great uh, career for yourself. Well, we're getting towards the end of our time, Bobby, and it's been great talking to you. And I can't wait to uh, get together with you again. But when you're back in town, like you're but you're on the East Coast now. No, I'm I'm in town. Oh, you're in Marin. Okay, uh, maybe we could eat at an outdoor dining. I haven't really felt comfortable enough to be uh, eating indoors yet. I know that's sad, but that's sort of where I'm at. Well, how are you getting through this time? Are you doing service calls and stuff? Is it has it affected your business? I have actually been hired during the the thick of it. People just uh, they were they wanted their plumbing done, and plumbing was considered a an essential you know profession. Yeah. I don't have your level of concern. I'm triple vaccinated. Right. And I feel like I'm pretty healthy and I have a good immune system. And if I get it, I expect to recover. And so I'm not living in fear. I guess I'm kind of in the middle. I'm not a guy who's going to drive in his car by himself wearing, his, wearing a mask. And I just, I'm not ready to go to concerts or be in big groups or, or things like that, I guess. So I don't know. I don't understand it enough to, I mean, obviously I'm vaccinated and those types of things, but I'm a little cautious and I don't really like to do those things anyways. So, so it's, it hasn't been that much well, of a... That hasn't been a sacrifice for you. No. Any plans for the future? Any last words of wisdom for people who want to... Wait a minute. The you say last words of wisdom um, on this podcast. I, I, I was, I'm unaware that I've uh, that I've that there have been any words of wisdom. So I'm <laughs> just trying to squeeze some words of wisdom out of me. Forget about it. It's too late already. Yeah, you are. You should know by now that you're not going to get any. I, I don't think so. I think we got a lot of good information, a lot of interesting stuff, especially this idea that you can walk away from show business. There's nothing that says you have to stay in something you don't like to do. You know, well, let me just say one thing. Sure. Uh, o. Henry writes great short stories, and he wrote a short story called The Humorist. And it was about this guy that worked in an office, and everyone always came to him because he always had the funny quips, the, the great uh, you know, one-liners. And if there was a little speech to be made at a birthday or something, they'd ask him to do it. And then they said, you know, you really ought to write a column or something. So he started writing. He submitted a column to some papers, some publication, and they, they loved him. They wanted to hire him. They said, we need this many columns from you each uh, week or each month. And he said his life became a hell because before it was all light and unexpected. And, and uh, everything, every bit of humor that he had just flowed naturally. And it was a bonus. But now it became a job. You had to keep take notes, and and it became a serious business where he wasn't enjoying his own humor. So it's it's possible that if you you know if you don't enjoy the process of of show business, you're much better off doing something else. And if you are naturally a performer, well, you do it every day. You know, you do it in your social uh, interactions. You can enhance your life with your communication skills and your humor, but you don't need to get paid for it. You know, when I have a, people I teach, I say, you know, people, they need stage time, right? They always want stage time. I'm like, you have stage time every day. Right. Like when you go to the store, when you, when you go to the bank, whenever you interact with people, you have a choice. Can I make them laugh? Can I make them feel better about their day? Can I bring some fun to their day? Exactly. And you get kind of like uh, little things you say a lot. Like I have some jokes I use a lot. With the, when I buy groceries and, and stuff and I have jokes, I, I repeat because I know that it always gets a laugh from the from the person checking me out. And I think bringing laughter and bringing entertainment to the world is uh, maybe not as important as plumbers, 
because when you have a leak, you want a plumber, that's for sure. Well, you're absolutely right. And I've, uh, I haven't heard many people say it exactly the way I say it about your interactions with people out in the world, because you just, if you bring lightness, aren't you surprised sometimes you'll see somebody that almost looks negative or looks like they wouldn't have anything to offer and you make a little quip and their eyes sparkle and they brighten up and they're right with you. And you see that there's so much undetected and unrealized, uh, unrecognized goodness and fun in people. When you look for it, you'll find it. Instead yeah. of having the attitude that just things are negative and bad and walking around, you know, bringing a cloud with you everywhere you go. Well, and I think juggling serves that purpose. I mean, people think that maybe juggling has no purpose, that why do it? Because the world needs wonder and magic. The world needs special people. And the juggler is a special person. I applaud you for your life you've led, and I can't wait to get together again. I definitely will have a party in my backyard, and I can't wait to have you over. Okay. And thanks, thanks again. we got to bring it to the end, but uh, love chatting with you, and thank you so much for being part of the Drop Everything podcast, Mr. Bobby Sandler. Okay, Mr. Daniel Holtzman. Pleasure. I hope you enjoyed Drop Everything podcast number 101 with the first juggler I ever saw on TV, Mr. Bobby Sandler. Thank you, Bobby, for the part you played in my career and for inspiring jugglers all over the world. All right, now go thank our sponsor, the IJA, by going to juggle.org. And thank me by going to amazon.com and rating and reviewing my new book, Bud Suckers. This weed will give you the munchies for blood. Now go out there, drop everything, except when you're juggling.